you know, this is my first, like, full-time job in ministry. And so early on, you know, it was kind of weird and different having an office and, and stuff like that. But continuously, even still, my favorite days are Sundays and Wednesdays because it's when I actually get to be with you guys, our church. And so I remember we get to do stuff with the students. And so thanks for letting me worship with you guys. I just want to say that's a, that's a privilege, and I'm always excited to do it, especially— uh, you know, when Ridge asks you to lead in his absence. Um, he's a man of great faith, and he's proving it. So, um, but let me be up here. That's a joke. You got it. But um, for real, I'm excited for the opportunity and just to be with you guys. It's the week of VBS. Um, I'm sure you noticed this isn't our new stage backdrop. It's definitely for VBS. But uh, we have tremendous opportunity, and that's something from day one when I got here in April 2016 that I have believed about our church, is that there is tremendous opportunity, not just here, um, but where the Lord has geographically placed this building. There's so many people, and there's more moving in. I think there's close to 400 homes being built in what used to be our field that we could look at. Uh, That's incredible to me. And so I think a lot of times the question we have is, uh, what will draw people to the church? We're here. Do we need fajita suppers or um, like louder music or quieter music or more exciting activity. There's all these things that we think of and what do we need to do to draw people to the church. And we know that culture is changing. Even in my lifetime since 92, things have changed in the United States. For some of y'all, y'all seen um, a lot more change. And church culture isn't what it used to be. People don't just go to church as automatically as they once did. And even people who go to church now may not go as consistently as they used to. And so I think um, when I was kind of preparing what to preach when Ridge asked me, the last time, last summer when he asked me if I had preached, there was something that the Lord had had in my heart for a while. And this time I was like, ah, I'd love to do it. And then I turned around and I was like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to talk about. But it's probably better that way because I really had to press in and seek God in it. And this is, this is the direction he took me. And so while I was kind of asking that question, thinking about how we can reach the students that are going to move into this neighborhood and not neglecting the ones that do live right over here, there's so much opportunity near here. And what the Lord kind of revealed to me is that I might be asking the wrong question of how to draw people to the church. And so rather, the direction we're going to go today is what will draw the church to the people? Because we're here, and... um, all my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We need to come worship in spirit and truth on a weekly basis. And there's people less than a really long stone's throw away that may not know about Jesus. Or they may not have a relationship with him. And so the question and kind of the end that we're going to pursue today is what will draw the church to the people? You know, there's a movie that came out a while ago. I was actually talking to David Walvert about this the other day. And the Field of Dreams— and I told him it was like a classic, and he's like, it's not that old. It came out three years before I was born. We checked. So, um, Fill the Dreams, you guys are familiar with it. Kevin Costner, baseball movie. And in that movie, one of the things he says, like the iconic line, it's actually not him that says it, but he receives it. Someone says, if you build it, they will come. Are you all familiar with that? Okay, so that's a baseball movie, talking about a baseball field. But sometimes I think we have the same mentality about the church. If we build the church, like the physical building, people will just come. It's a church. Or if I build this program, if I have this event, people will come. And that's partially true, but also sometimes it looks like 
And I was reading online a while ago. They had pictures of old Olympic venues from years past and what happens to those massive stadiums and the things they build. And there's one that has pictures, and it looks almost like Chernobyl, of like everything grown up and built up around it, and it's just not in use anymore. And so they built it, and people came, but people didn't keep going. It was there, and then it wasn't in use anymore. And so um, the kingdom of heaven is not to fill the dreams. That's, that's the point here today. You know, I heard someone say once that the kingdom of heaven is upside down and inside out. And that doesn't mean like morally or ethically. What it meant was that it's counterintuitive to how man operates. It's counterintuitive to how I try to achieve power or influence. Jesus' monarchy, his throne doesn't work like earthly monarchies. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today. And before we read, uh, would you guys pray with me before we look at God's word? Father, thank you for uh, meeting with us today, just giving us the opportunity to worship you together. Thank you for, God, just uh, this church family and who we get to worship with. I pray that, um, Lord, your words today are, they ring true. I pray that they're challenging, but at the same time they're encouraging, that they would sharpen us. Jesus, I pray as a result of it, of my study of this, God, that you would use this in my life to make me look more like you. I pray that for my friends here, for my church. I pray that you'd start it with EBS this week. Lord, speak to us through this passage and let us see what you have for us. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Tim kind of referenced where we're going today, which is cool because that was unplanned. And um, we're looking at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read and the passage right after the foot washing and kind of what that meant and what Jesus was trying to leave behind by it. So, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It says, As Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus was a man of the people from day one. Um, We call him king now, and he always has been, but that wasn't his goal while he was on earth, was to establish authority with man for his 30-year time here. That wasn't his goal. That wasn't his interest. And so he had humble beginnings, humble trajectory into his work, and a humble trajectory into his ministry. And so one thing we know to be true is that compassion is something that fueled Jesus' ministry. It said he looked at the people and he had compassion on them, and that's what moved him to serve them. Okay? And so um, you guys can weigh this with me, but I think we, as people, usually have an easier—it's easier for me to have compassion on people who have similar backgrounds as me because I know what they've been through. Okay, so if you lost one of your parents at an early age, you're gonna re- that's going to resonate with you differently whenever someone else that you meet has lost a parent at an early age because you have that shared bond. It was a struggle, it was a hardship, and it's still hard, but it's easier to have compassion because you've been there. Okay, and so part of Jesus' background is that he's been there. So he's with these people that are oppressed, waiting on a Savior. And so he looks at them and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. And something I love about this passage is that Jesus didn't set up 
like a tent out in the wilderness and say, hey, if you want to come hear me speak or be healed, come meet me at this tent. No, he went to the towns and the villages. He went to where the people were, and he encountered them along their way. And so we see that he went to the people. His ministry is fueled by his compassion. And it's the legacy that he left behind for his disciples. That wasn't something that Jesus intended only him to do. He didn't expect to be the compassionate one and his disciples kind of like pick up the extra bread that's left over. But he was setting an example every step of the way. That's why he so intentionally spent time with these guys. Because in reality, he had three years with them to make sure that this stuck. So when he was um, killed on the cross and resurrected, that they had the knowledge and the insight and the training to at least get the ball rolling. He was counting on them starting his church. And so he didn't waste time with them. And he desperately wanted people, he wanted his disciples to see the people the way he saw them. And so the people that were messy or were unclean or had too much drama in their lives or the people that, you know, sometimes we like try to steer clear of because we have enough going on ourselves. Jesus wanted his disciples to see those people as people. He wanted to see them as valued. So that's why in his ministry, he took extra care and precaution to value the people who were kind of the outsiders. And the truth of it is, all this can resonate with being an outsider because at one point in time, we have been. Maybe not as much as somebody else, but I've been in a spot where I felt like the outsider. And so what Jesus is showing us is that that should fuel my compassion for people who feel like they're on the outside. I think of the woman that came through the crowd and just touched his robe because she thought it would heal her. And the first time I read that, like, it, it read as if Jesus was going to be upset with her and, like, get her in trouble because she, like, touched his robe. But we see he turns around and he's like, hey, like, someone touched my robe. I felt the power leave me. And she comes forward and she tells him he has compassion on her. Okay? And so that's what fueled Jesus' ministry. And so if Jesus was moved by compassion, what moves us? Like, what motivates me to do ministry? And beyond that, what motivates me just to be a person on a daily basis? And so what scares me, and when I was going through this, is that oftentimes what motivates me is selfish ambition. It's my own, like, hobbies or my own security, my own well-being, my own interest, my emotions. Like, that's what motivates me if I'm not careful. If I just let things happen, I will be self-motivated. And so... Sometimes we try to, like, cover that up. Because, like, well, it's actually me caring about my family or my people. But still what it is, it's us pursuing our self in a, in a selfish end. I'm pursuing my wants, my needs, my security. And so what motivates me is myself making sure that I get what I feel like I deserve or what I want. But what Jesus did was he let other people's suffering and sorrow fuel his ministry. He was... He had compassion on them, and that's what changed the way he saw them. That's what allowed him to see them as people. And so, a lot of us know that, and we know that Jesus, um, he had to be compassionate to want to die for somebody like me. I, I, I believe that, and I know a lot of you guys believe the same. But there's a cost to having a lifestyle and a mindset like Jesus had. It's costly to put yourself and put your own needs behind the needs of other people. And it terrifies us. We get so concerned that we're not going to be taken care of, and so we think, they need to take care of themselves because I'm taking care of myself. But really, Jesus says, no, like, 
Um, you take care of the kingdom, and the Lord will take care of you. And so the issue and the rub that we have, and kind of here's our predicament, is I honestly think that we want our churches to grow. We want our culture to change and to become more aligned with um, godly values instead of rebellion. We want our kids to grow up loving the Lord. We want the next generation um, to get us back on the right track. If, um, a lot of us may think we're already too far gone. I don't know. But we want things to change. And the issue that comes with it, though, is that we want those changes to come without any of the cost or the sacrifice or the effort or the suffering. I want it to happen without it being a burden on me. So you all get after No, but that really is how we think and we operate. Because if I passed out sheets of paper in here, and it's like, hey, do you want to see America not be so ungodly? You'd be like, absolutely. Um, and then we'll say, okay, what are you willing to do about it? That's where you're like, whoa, what am I willing to do about it? This isn't my problem. My kids are in church. I parent my kids. And so that's the issue in the realms. We don't want anything to do with it. When I was in college... I was a psychology major, and so one of the things we learned about was called bystander apathy, or the bystander effect. And it's a social psychology phenomenon that occurs whenever there's like a crime or an offense, or there's something that needs to be done in a large group of people. If you were to ask my mom, it would be whenever like the trash needed to be changed and none of her six kids would change it. Okay, it's like someone else is going to do it. But on a realer picture, they are realizing that in like, large urban settings, especially, like, imagine, like, downtown New York or Chicago, where a crime, like an assault or a mugging or a theft or something happens on the street, and so there might be some people in their apartments that hear it, and they look out and they see it happening. There might be some people that drive by in a taxi. There might be some people are aware of what's happening, and what was alarming to them was that none of these people were doing anything to help. And not like John Wayne, kick down the door, come help. Even just calling the police and saying, hey, there's a criminal here. They weren't doing it. And so it caused, like science, they saw an issue, and so they researched it, and they observed it, and what they realized is that the more people that are present during an emergency, the less likely each one is to help. Which sounds off, but if you think about it, that's how things play out. The more people that are around when something happens, and I'm not talking, not like a 9-11 level of crisis, but imagine a smaller issue that isn't affecting everybody involved. Because if it affects us, you can bet I'm going to help, or at least like try to figure something out. But if it's affecting somebody else, and they realized in the study that it's the anonymity that drives this. If I can remain anonymous in this group, I'm less likely to help. Because it's not going to come back to me later for not having done anything. I'm in my apartment. They don't know that I saw anything. I can sleep easy tonight. That happens in the church as well, for small things and for, for large things alike. And today we're hitting evangelism as a whole, and our role in that, and our church's role in this community. But even for VBS, even for trash that's left in the Great Hall afterwards, even for our students in the youth room on a, on a Sunday or Wednesday, the thought process is, one, it's not my trash. Two, I think the church pays people to do that. Three, Jeff will probably, you know, like, there's other reasons I don't have to do it. Okay? And so, we have that mindset with evangelism, too. With loving people around us. With taking care of um, the needs in our community. And maybe, like, our church, I feel like we actually do a pretty good job at a lot of this. And so I want this to be an encouragement where you know that we're doing well. And I want it to be a challenge where you know we're coming up short. And so, Jesus was moved by compassion. 
He took it upon himself to meet those people's needs, to bring other people along with him to teach them how to meet these needs, to how to care for people. That's why whenever the story in the gospel about the little children being brought to Jesus and the disciples get all grumpy and they're like, hey, like, this is an evangelist. He doesn't need little kids. And like Jesus teaches them, no, like, this is what I'm about. In fact, childlike faith is actually really helpful in the kingdom. And so he teaches them, he takes them along with him, and he's showing them if compassion for other people isn't driving your ministry, you're going to point people towards yourself. It's going to happen because it's going to become about you. And so Jesus, here's the powerful thing about compassion and what the, the compassion Jesus had. It's the feeling like in your gut, that really like deep internal feeling, not of like, oh, that's really sad. I hope that puppy does better. No, like the gut feeling of, man, somebody should do something. Have you ever had that thought? Like, somebody's got to do something about that. And then compassion pushes you to take the next step, and it's like, what can I do to help? So when Jesus was moved by compassion, he preached he taught people the truth. He prayed um, for himself, for his own ministry, but also those around him and those he was training. And he acted. So compassion moved him to preach, to pray, and to act. It moved him into a posture of service. And so if we're not willing to get close to the people around us, if I keep everybody at an arm's length or further than that away, I'm stifling my spirit of compassion because I'm never having to press into something that's hard to see or hard to realize. I'm not having to press into someone else's business, and so it's out of sight and it's out of mind. I can't be held accountable to it. I'm on the fourth floor, and they're way down there on the street. That's where the issue is. But that's the bystander apathy of our hearts that keeps other people at bay because I don't want to be burdened by what they're burdened for. If I figure out how hard it is for a single mom, I might feel like I need to do something for them. Or if I feel how hard it is for a kid with parents who don't support their beliefs and don't care if they're in church or not— I might be burdened for him. It might weigh me down. This, is, this one's free. This is a side note. But I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't love me that way. Because when I am my most burdensome and the clumsiest and the dirtiest and the worst is what the gospel tells me, that's when Jesus died for me. That's when Jesus loved me most in my mess. And so if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, and if I want to love people the way Jesus loved them, then I can't have a little bar that says you have to be this tall to ride. Like, yo, we'll love you, but after you get that drunk taken care of. And that's almost automatic for us as people. It's like, look, this is like self-defense, you know? I can't breathe. They're a ticking time bomb. Maybe they are. But Jesus pressed in and loved those people. And I think with his Holy Spirit, he's equipped us to do the same. You see, compassion should be the natural result of the believer encountering other people's hardships and pain. And I think with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, whenever you encounter that, you can't help but be convicted. You can't help but feel prompted towards something. Now, we have a a bit of free will in the choice because there's been times where I've been prompted to do something, and I didn't. And I know I'm not alone in that. There's been times where I've been prompted, I've been obedient. There's been times I've been prompted and I've seen uh, me kick the can so far down the road that somebody else picked it up and did it. And I was like, oh, that should have been me. Like, God asked me to do it, and I didn't. But compassion should be the natural result of us encountering people's pain, of their hardships, of their mess. And sometimes I get, I analyze it too much, 
And so if it's a hardship that was like self-caused, I might have less sympathy because they did it to themselves. You ought to know better. And if it's something they can't help, that really is sad. Uh, you know, but Jesus didn't give us those um, parameters for how to have compassion on people. I mean, look at when he met with the woman at the well. Do you think any of that was, uh, was self-induced pain in her life? Probably some of it. You can talk about background or parents or lack thereof. But Jesus didn't bring that into effect. He just said, hey, I'm meeting you where you are. And here's the gospel. Here's the opportunity. Um, I'm willing to love you now. And so that should be the result of us encountering people. And so when we don't do that, we actively miss opportunities to be the church. I know a lot of y'all know about Feed My Sheep. A lot of y'all go down there and help. That's a game changer, man. Because four miles from where I live, and I buy groceries every week, and I get to eat and have food, there's people who come and wait in line for a hot meal in a styrofoam box because they don't have anything else to eat. That's not the time for me to be judging that, well, why do, they, why do they need it? Like, there's jobs around here. That's not the time for me to do that. It's a need that we can meet. And here's the thing about meeting needs, though, and this is where we're going. Meeting needs is just an opportunity to show somebody Christ. We can feed those people every week for the rest of their lives or the last Saturday of the month for the rest of their lives and never tell them about Jesus. And they might live longer and have a fuller belly, but they're still going to be dead and not know Jesus. That's not really that productive. But I think as we meet needs, we have opportunities to show people the life that Jesus gave us. And so what will draw the church to the people of today. See, the message of Christ shouldn't change. It can't. It's his message. And we do um, a disservice, if nothing, much worse than that whenever we try to, like, alter the gospel to fit today's culture. Jesus' gospel will always be his gospel. It's the truth today, yesterday, tomorrow. But the packaging might change. Okay, we might deliver in a slightly different method. And so, what does this look like for us, the church, today? And I'm kind of answering the question I said we shouldn't ask, but how do we draw people in, one? How do we actually get out of our, our shells and go be the church in the community? And so I was thinking about it, and is it, does it need to be like bigger and better programs or events? I know some churches do like upwards sports leagues and stuff like that. I don't think anything's wrong with any of those. I think the better, the more people we can bring to our church and the more uh, we can meet their needs around us, that's us doing our job. But we come up short when we don't realize that those are just opportunities for us to show them Christ. And so with VBS coming up this week, there's going to be plenty of young children in this church and parents picking up and dropping off that may not know the Lord. We get to tell our kids about the Lord at VBS all week. But who's going to meet those parents? Because just because their kids came for five nights doesn't mean they're going to be with us on Sunday. And so what it is, it's an opportunity. We create opportunities for us to encounter people who don't know the Lord. And so when I go get lunch with the students, the first time it was really weird because, one— I think, was, I think Academy was the first one I went to, Academy High School. And they have like the no shade or the no beard policy. I walked in and I was like, I think they know that I'm not a high schooler. You know? And so like, there's like, you know, okay, you check your license at the door. And 
you'll sit down and be like, oh, this is my youth pastor, Jeff. Uh, second to parents coming to lunch, that's how it felt at first. And, but it was an opportunity for me, one, to engage them where they are and show them, look, I'm invested in you beyond your attendance on Sunday and Wednesday. I care about you beyond, like it's not just the three hours a week that you're here, the three hours a week that you miss that I'm worried about. And second, I had a chance to meet a bunch of their friends and just be present and be known. It was my shot to get out there. And so, these events are opportunities, but they themselves aren't evangelism. And so to minister to our community the way that Jesus would, we can't strictly rely on our church's programs. If we do that, we're going to come up short. There's a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert E. Coleman. One of my favorite books. I read it. I'm rereading it. If you read it, you're going to be like, that's totally where Jeff got his message. Kind of, okay? <laughs> but um, I'm going to read you an excerpt from it here that talks about evangelism. I thought he worded it really well. It'll be on the screen, too. He says, When will we realize that evangelism is not done by something but by someone? It is an expression of God's love, and God is a person. His nature, being personal, is only expressed through personality, first revealed fully in Christ, and now expressed through His Spirit in the lives of those yielded to Him. Committees may help organize and direct it, and to that end they are certainly needed. But the work itself is done by people reaching other people for Christ. Man, what a challenging question. When will we realize that evangelism is not done by something, but by someone? As someone who plans a lot of the somethings for our church, that's a great reminder for me. Because it's not kicking that out the window. It's not saying, don't ever have those events. But it's saying, when will we realize that the event itself isn't what we're after? So, three things we're going to look at today for how Jesus stayed on mission how he didn't get settled and just become attractional. Because you know that people would have come once they heard that he was giving free meals and healing and preaching, and he was, he was stirring things up. And Jesus actually did the opposite. Whenever it got too crazy, he would like slip out a back door and go to another town. So how did Jesus stay missional? The first one is that men were his method. They were his method then, they were his method now. He used men and women to reach people for Christ. And so... To that end, when Jesus recruited disciples, he didn't say, hey, like, I have this really good discipleship class if you can pay me like $600 or coins or whatever. No, he went to people, he met them where they are. We're not going to flip there, but in Luke chapter 5, you see him recruiting some fishermen to come be fishers of men to help him in his ministry. And he doesn't meet them at a restaurant or tell them to meet him in town. He goes to their boat. Like, where else are you going to find fishermen? Their boat. He goes to the people, he recruits them where they are. And so, we get lazy and we want our programs to do our service and our, and our evangelism with us. So it's like, Lord, like, I want someone to disciple. And you hold your hands out and you're like, there's no one here. I guess he doesn't want me to disciple anybody. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus sought people out. It's cool because it's a little picture of the gospel of him seeking people out. And sinners when they're lost. But he met those guys where they were. So events create opportunities for us to be the church and for us to be the bridge builders. It's exciting when we have a bunch of people come to VBS, but what's really exciting is when I see our church making connections with those families. Even if it's, oh, that's the H-E-B-I grocery shop at. Start there. We're the bridge builders. 
if we expect people to come to us every time, and sometimes they will. Like sometimes people will come and knock on the door on a Thursday afternoon and be like, hey, can I meet the pastor? We want to come to your church. That's really cool. And it's a blessing when it happens, and it's, but I don't think that's the, the normal everyday way that we're going to reach the community around us. You see, Jesus was training his disciples to be people who went and sought people out, who went and met people where they are, who were interested in their lives and pressed into where they were. See, we want to wait on people to come. We don't want to have to go and get people. Another year when I was in college, we were leading, we had like college student-led challenge groups, like we have here. And one year the theme was go and get. Cal and Macy will remember. We had little bracelets that said go and get. And our college pastor at the time was like stepping all over our toes because I was like, look, man, like I'm already leading a Bible study, you know? He said, no. He said, you guys are just divvying up the people who already come to our church, and that's your challenge group. That's not the purpose of this. You need to go and get people. That's why they employed college students, because you have classes with them. You eat meals with them. You live in the same place as them. The call is to go and get. And that was so challenging for me, because my thought process was, let's just get the ones who are already at church, because they're already interested in this. But he was calling us deeper. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. There's so many people in the community around us I really don't worry about other student ministries' growth or decline because even if they are full and have to have three student services on a Sunday morning, there's still enough other students that don't go to church anywhere for us to have a healthy and thriving student ministry. It's not, a, it's not a competition. That's a success. And so when the call is to go and get, I'm not trying to leech off students from other student ministries because our disciple now is cooler or we had better T-shirts. There's enough students that aren't involved anywhere yet that need to be brought in. So men and women were his method then, and there is method now. Second thing, he set the example that he expected from his followers. Go ahead and flip over to the book of John, chapter 13. You know, we, we've all had the manager. For mine, it was when I worked at Chick-fil-A. There were some managers that were really positive, and there were some managers that would ask you to do the weird, like, the most ridiculous things. I had to clean out a booth once with, like, a plastic knife and all the chicken nugget crumbs. I had never seen that manager do that a day in their life, and they didn't. Okay, it's bad leadership to ask people to do something that you are, yourself are not willing to do. Bad management, bad leadership. Jesus taught us the opposite of that, that whoever wants to be the greatest leader will actually be the best servant. And so in this chapter of John, this portion of scripture we're going to read, other than his death on the cross, I think this is one of the most like, significant things that he left his disciples. It's the foot washing. You guys know. But we're going to read this passage. We're going to pick it up right after he finished in verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 16. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So we see Jesus here washing their feet, which usually would have been a servant's job. We actually talked about this with the students a few weeks ago, and we were talking about imagine wearing flip-flops for days on end and using the same robes that livestock use and stuff. Like, your feet just wouldn't have been very clean. I mean, I think feet are gross now, and people wear shoes all the time. So Jesus here is humbling himself by serving these guys. It's the last night he has with them. And he didn't try to do all his favorite things or get his favorite meal. He didn't try to go see his favorite movie or hang out with his family one last time. He spent his last night alive with the guys who he loved the most, who he trained the most, and who he was relying on to do the same. And so he tells them, I left you an example of how to love one another. It's messy. It's humbling. It's probably not what you want to do. I'd rather just get each of you a gift card and say thank you. (laughs) But no, he washes their feet. And so he sets this example for them. And he knows that when he's gone, they're going to be the leaders of the church. And so he's trying to teach them how church leaders and Christians ought to be regardless. And he says, look, you know that a servant isn't greater than his master. And I'm your master. You call me master. You call me Lord. And I just wash your feet. So one, that tells them, if Jesus humbled himself enough to wash the feet of his subordinates, then we ought to be willing to wash the feet to take care of the people that we're on the same level with. You can make the argument that we're on the same level with everybody, regardless of title or position. But because he knew that there would be titles and there would be positions in churches, or the way things were layered, he had to make sure they knew, don't use it for your own advantage. I mean, you ever think how backwards it is that Jesus is last night with them? The disciples aren't washing his feet and saying, man, like, thank you so much for the last three years. No. He says, no, this is the example that I'm setting for you guys. And so what he shows us is that he set the example he expected, but also obedience is costly. You might have to swallow some of your pride. You might have to see things differently. You might have to get close or treat someone who you don't necessarily think deserves a bunch of respect with respect. Not that you would do anything bad to them, but you might have to embrace them as you would one of your dearest friends when they're not that. You might have to love people up close, but obedience oftentimes is costly and inconvenient. I don't know why I have trash cans at my mom and dad's house on the mind, but there's never a time when I was growing up that my dad asked me to take out the trash that I was like, oh, this is profitable and not inconvenient. I was always doing, you know, even if I wasn't doing anything, it was still inconvenient to have to go take out the trash. And so I think we learned so much in the home and growing up, though, but what you're setting the tone for is understanding that it's okay to be obedient even when it's costly and even when it's inconvenient. And actually, that's when it's the most fruitful. If you only ever do the stuff you're good at or the stuff that's closest to you, you're not going to build a very big circle. And so obedience is costly and inconvenient, but nobody gave up more or inconvenienced himself more than Jesus did. He set the example for us. The number three, the third thing I'm going to show you today that Jesus showed us in his ministry is that reproduction was key. If reproduction 
didn't occur, if discipleship didn't happen with these guys, we probably wouldn't be here today. If the message of Christ was to spread, was to be carried on to other people, it couldn't stay solely with them. So they had sweet, special, quality time with the Lord. But it couldn't just stay with them. He taught them stuff so they could teach others as well. And so as Jesus spent time with his disciples, it's clear that they picked up on the urgency of his mission. I mean, Jesus had three years. Some of y'all over here, you think three years sounds like a really long time. Like, oh, it's, I'll be 19 then. Oh, my goodness. And then for some of y'all, like three years, like I went to bed one night and I woke up three years later, <laughs> you know? Um, no, three years flies by. He had three years with him. And so he was urgent, not just in his ministry to people around him, but in setting the example for them so that they would know this is how you need to love people. This is how you need to see people. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 2.2, and it says, it's Paul writing to Timothy, which is another great picture of discipleship. And so Paul trained this guy up, Timothy, and Timothy's over here leading this church, and Paul is writing Timothy a letter of encouragement. And he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who can teach others also. And that one verse, I think there's four stages of disciples, like four generations. There's Paul, who taught Timothy. And then Timothy is supposed to teach other reliable men who can teach others. In one, in one verse of encouragement, reproduction was key. The church is a tremendous opportunity to invest in other people and to be invested in because there's always going to be people who are more mature than you in their faith and there's always going to be people who are newer to the faith than you are. There's going to be people who can sharpen you There's going to be people who allow you to be sharpened in loving them, even though it needs patience. There's an opportunity to invest in the church. But sometimes we think that church is for us. It's like, I really need them to play that song this Sunday because that's when I worship best. Or I need Ridgeback. We all do, okay? (laughs) I promise. But uh, if your faith and your church attendance is strictly based on what you can get out of it. You're going to miss the beauty and the excitement of the reproduction that comes with our faith. It gets stagnant if it stays with me. That's why the first eight or nine years of me being a believer, I got bored of being a Christian, which sounds really, it sounds silly now, but the reason it was is because I was going to church and I was being taught and I had parents who like encouraged me and taught me at home. And I was just soaking it up. And I was like, okay, this is cool. But I remember, th- I remember thinking, like I, really, I had this thought one morning. I woke up and I saw my dad reading his Bible. My dad is, don't tell him I told you this, but he's like 40-something years older than me. Okay? I was the youngest kid of six. And I remember thinking, how in the world do people still find interest in the Bible 40 years from now? Because I go to church and I hear all these stories, I feel like I know the Bible really well. It's because I didn't understand um, the process of discipleship or spiritual growth, really. It was all head knowledge at that point. And so it can't be based on us. You know, we get stuck on the programs. We get stuck on the um, events. We rely on the pastors. We rely on the younger, more energetic Christians. We rely on the older, wiser ones. 
the trained ones, the less busy ones, the ones who live closer to the church, the ones who like church more. We get stuck on those things. But God is a personal God who used the person, Jesus Christ, to set the model for us. And so today, it's with his Holy Spirit that we get to evangelize the people personally. I'm not saying large groups of people can't be um, convicted and saved at once. But the way our church works is we spend time here together on a Sunday morning, and then we all go our separate ways. And maybe we'll see each other throughout the week, but it's kind of like seeds being passed out in the wind and getting to go off to their separate places. You have a unique sphere of influence to me. Even if we know the same people, you might know them differently or based on different circumstances. And so a program or event will never be an appropriate substitute for person-to-person evangelism. But I would love if those programs and events became places where person-to-person evangelism happened. I think that's the sweet spot in between having a church that doesn't do anything and then having a church that's solely event-based and attractional. Somewhere in the middle, there's a moment where we can meet the needs of our community. We can do fun stuff for kids. We can bring people in, and we can still encounter them with the gospel. We can still engage them. The task is ours. As the church, the task is ours. You know, while preparing this message, I thought of VBS, and it was hard not to with this massive living room behind me, but for real, that's a huge TV. It's a big screen, if I've already seen one. No, I thought of VBS. I thought of Harvest Fest. I thought of the block party, Feed My Sheep, our Sundays and Wednesdays, our church supper on Wednesday nights. I thought of our Disciple Nows. I thought of Wild Week. I thought of Kids Camp. I love each of these events. I already told you guys, my favorite part of being a pastor here is that I get to be with you guys. I love those events. I love seeing people come and having needs met. I love getting to take our students places. But I have to remember that these events and projects are simply opportunities, not the solution. The solution is working. It's not a a quick fix math problem. It's a working solution. But those events are tools and our aid to evangelism. They're tools that we get to use. Or they're tools that we can neglect. But I haven't done a lot of building. Maybe Joel or Paul or somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I've never seen like a good old-fashioned hammer driving a nail by itself. Somebody had to swing it. So with PBS this week, with your job, with people you know, the people you encounter, you have an opportunity to swing to make contact, because that nail won't drive itself in. The Holy Spirit does the, does the convicting. The Holy Spirit draws people in. But sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to use you in that process. Right. So it's not based on me painting a pretty enough picture of the gospel for our students to make sure that, um, no, I rely on the Holy Spirit for that. Yeah. I'm going to cut them short. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to miss opportunities. But the Holy Spirit indwells each believer and it gives us the opportunity to be used in his ministry. We're almost done. The band's going to come back up. And I just want to leave you guys 
with this. Jesus employed men and women to grow the church and to spread his message. Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be someone the Lord can call on and say, I want to use you in this way? Are you willing to be a bridge builder? Are you willing to find people who don't necessarily just fall into your lap, but to go and seek people in their mess, in their need? Are you willing to be used? Second thing. He set the example. He served, he served better and gave just as much, if not more, than he expects from us. He showed us that obedience is costly. And even so, are you willing to be obedient even when it costs you something? Are you willing to be obedient even when it's inconvenient? Even when it's outside of how you plan your day to go? Are you willing to be obedient? Third thing, reproduction was his key. It's a constant group effort. The body of Christ is, is kind of, we're all discipling each other all the time. I'm so thankful for our, our staff and people I get to work with here. And there's times where uh, I'm sure somehow the Lord used me to encourage or sharpen them. And there's often times where I know they sharpen me and they draw me and they bring me close. It's a, it's a group effort. The reproduction was his key. So, are you willing to invest in others to disciple and to be discipled? Are you willing to give instead of just receive? Because that culture won't be fostered if we all show up just expecting to take. Eventually, it's going to run out. Eventually, it's going to come up short. If other people come and incorporate into that, it's going to go even quicker. And I know you guys, and I know our church, and I know this is a body of givers. And so I'm asking the Lord to refine that and multiply it and utilize it. And yeah. so willing to see people's needs, hurts, their humanity, and so willing to see the people outside of these walls, I'm afraid that we're not going to meet our church's potential. Not that we won't do good. Or have salvation to lead people to the Lord. But I don't think it's going to be as tremendous or as big as it could be if we're willing to see the people around us. You know, VBS is a great chance this week to bring people into our church. It's a great chance to bring people in. It's an even better chance for us to take Jesus in a healthy community out to them. To show them what that looks like. That's why I love those events, because we have a chance. Have you ever been in a conversation or heard someone say something, and you're like, man, if I could just like get two minutes of your time, I could show them that that's not really what Christianity looks like. You know? And maybe that's what people feel it looks like. That's not who Jesus is. If I could just have a moment of their time. This is a moment of their time. We have the opportunity. He told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. Right. I used to think, like, one of the first times I read that passage, I thought it was really kind of like one of those underlying passages. I thought, that's really cool. The Bible's really cool. The harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Then one of my favorite bands wrote a song about it and said that, and I was like, man, this is the coolest 
Because I hear that the harvest is plenty and that encourages me. Because I'm not a farmer by any means, but I know if you have a plentiful harvest, that's a good thing. And sometimes I just stop there. I'm like, hey, the harvest is plenty. We'll see you guys next week. No, the workers are few. Crops that don't get harvested go to ruin. They get plowed up in extra soil, they're no good. Mm-hmm. And so he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. And here's why I think that's cool, is because I'm convinced if we pray that, it's going to be us. Mm-hmm. We're going to be some of the workers that he sends into the harvest if we're willing to ask him to do it. Amen. To empower us to see those opportunities, to make that connection, to be that bridge builder. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest and be ready when he says, it's you. Amen. But then as we come back up, we're going to pray, have a time of response. Thank you guys for sticking with me. I really am excited for BDS. I'm excited for what the Lord's going to do this week. I'm excited for when the Lord's taking my church. And I, like I said, I'm just thankful to be a part of it. Would you guys pray me? Lord, thank you for being present today. God, thank you for refining my heart. God, for, for directing these words. I pray that what my friends here heard today was from you, God, not from me. Jesus, I pray that we see you better because of this. I pray that um, our compassion grows because the heart you have for people. Lord, help me see people the way you see them. Not as an inconvenience or a burden, but as an opportunity. God, I pray today if there's anyone in the room who doesn't know you yet or hasn't experienced your compassion or your unconditional love or your forgiveness that transcends what any human on earth could forgive. I pray that today would be the day, Lord. I pray you stir our hearts. I pray that you give them boldness in this time of response. I pray that fear wouldn't hold us back. But God, we would uh, be willing just to, to own up with you just to level and, and be where you need us to be this week as our church approaches VBS and what all the opportunities that come with that. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.